This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian, tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things but at least I knew they were there just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side by side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. Shouldn't you be at work? It's a lovely chip! Oh, it's a brilliant goal from Lord Bohinen! Still it's not away. Southgate shot. Milosevic scores. DPR could do with a bit of magic from him. Maybe this is it. It is! Andy Sinton from nothing. Brian Roy has headed for his interlead. Whelan. Oh, what a goal from Noel Whelan. No power on it whatsoever. But Taibbi has made a horrendous error. Now, you know him better than anybody, probably. Do you back him to score quickly, yes or no? Yes. Oh, he hasn't. No. Hello and welcome to Quickly Kevin. Will he score? I'm Chris Skoll. Joining me, as always, Josh Whittacombe. Hello. And this intro courtesy of John Roberts, who says, Fastino Espria, it's good to see you. Michael Marden. Hello. That's a good one. A rare good one. A rare good one. Chris, have we got some correspondence? We have. Let's get into it. I'm Jim Rosenthal, and this is the Electronic Post Bag. You've got mail. Okay, first up, got an email from Richard Maiden. He said, you've been listening to our World Cup specials again, and the shenanigans... And it reminded him of the time that him and his mate Will became obsessed with the prediction skills of Paul the Octopus. With every match, he couldn't believe the predictions were coming true and he couldn't be happier when Paul the Octopus completed eight true predictions in a row. Anyway, that inspired him to go visit the small town of Oberhausen in Germany, where Paul lived in a sea life centre. He says, our girlfriends, girlfriends thought we'd be crazy and put it down to drunken talk that would never materialise. But in September 2010, him and his mate Will made the pilgrimage to see the talented octopus. Do you want to hear what happened? Oberhausen yeah. was a small and quiet, least touristy town he'd ever seen. The lady at the Sea Life Centre asked where we were from, surprised to see any foreigners. We explained they were there to see Paul. He went in, He's skipped dead. straight past... He died very swiftly after the well, World Cup, didn't he? Hang on. He Sorry. skipped and went straight ahead to see Paul's tank. There was a little World Cup display around his tiny tank. They were expecting something much grander for one of the biggest celebrity octopuses of the time. Yeah. Anyway, as he peered in, Paul was nowhere to be seen. Just the sad sight of a World Cup replica trophy, a football and a boot. They asked a staff member who said Paul was sleeping, hiding behind a rock at the back and impossible to oh. see. 
So they decided, given that they'd gone all the way there, they went out for lunch to revisit a few hours later. When they went back, Paul was still hiding. They took a photo of the empty tank, which I'll send you, and went back to Cologne. A week later, the sad news oh, no. broke that oh, Paul no. had they, died. No, died. <laughs> they were saddened but not surprised after witnessing his... <laughs> All day sleeping habits only a week before. Sad to say they didn't see Paul. <laughs> but glad they made the journey and have a oh great story God. to tell. There's a picture they've sent of Paul's so empty tank. when did they tank. make the journey? Cologne's lovely. When did they make the journey? September 2010. Oh, that is, that is that incredible. Is what a decision to go and visit him. I know. Yeah. Here's the, here's the picture uh, I've just sent you around. I'll, we'll put this on our Instagram. There's the picture from Richard Maiden of the empty tank, the World Cup trophy, the replica boot, and the football. Oh. Can I just ask you a question? Paul the I know this. Do we know what Paul the Octopus predicted? He got eight right in a row, didn't he? Oh here's yeah, so here is his, his results. Oh wow, he predicted some astonishing things. So he predicted Germany to beat Australia. He did all the German fixtures, you see. Then he predicted Germany to lose to Serbia, which was correct. Then Germany to beat Ghana, then Germany to beat England, Germany to beat Argentina, Germany to beat Spain. No, Spain to beat Germany, which he got correct. Then he got the third place playoff, Germany to beat Uruguay, then he got Spain to beat the Netherlands. That is an astonishing... His career success rate of predictions was 85.7%. That's incredible. Oh, my word. Incredible from Paul. Well done. Well done, Paul. What else you got, Chris? So, we, we discussed uh, in the World Cup specials, how important was the World Cup finals of 1966? How much did it actually matter? Yes. There's yes. an interesting fact to, that, gives, that tells you how much kind of people cared about it. it. So, this was the plan for the World Cup in 1966. As hosts, England were drawn in Group 1 along with Mexico, Uruguay and France. And due to travel arrangements, all group games were scheduled to take place in London as the largest yep. and most Correct. important football stadium in the country, Wembley was selected to host all six group games. But despite the planning, only five of the six games were actually played at Wembley. This is because on Friday the 15th of July, the group stage match between France and Uruguay had to be moved from Wembley because the venue owners refused to reschedule Greyhound racing that night that was due to take place. <laughs> so the France versus Uruguay fixture was moved was to White City like Stadium. Acton? Yeah, White City Stadium, yeah. So what is White City Stadium? I've seen that listed before as a World Cup venue. Was it for the Olympics? It was very close to TV Centre, I remember that much. Oh, it was built for the Summer Olympics? Yes, in 1908. It hosted the finish of the modern marathon and other sports like swimming, stock car racing, and a match from the 1966 World Cup. It had a capacity of 93,000. That is it's uh, mad, isn't it, that? It was demolished in 1985 and is now the site occupied by White City Place. I don't know what White City Place is. I think it's the other oh, BBC, that's the BBC Media Village. Yeah, that's right. Oh, and there's right, actually yeah, yeah. the finish line is marked by the entrance of the, that new BBC building. Fun oh, fact. Wow. So why did they play it there and not at a football ground? It's an interesting question. Daniel Cashin, who sent in this email, speculates that that was the last ever football game played at White City Stadium. No doubt someone might. Yeah, I can imagine. It looks, according to Wikipedia, that looks right. That is, an, that is really interesting, isn't it? I love yeah. um, stadiums that aren't around anymore, any and kind of quirks. Like this White City Stadium, like a massive stadium like that that had football that didn't have a football club as a tenant. I find that kind of stuff mind-blowing. Yeah, but as you know, Chris, using an Olympic stadium for a football club can rip the soul the, out of that club. The, so I, I think I think 
Uh, QPR made the right, and Fulham and Chelsea made the right decision. <laughs> it's the only to way to enjoy ground. football. The only way to enjoy football that it's got some Olympic heritage within the stadium. <laughs> <laughs> um, got this email from Ollie Jenks. Ollie Jenks opens classic Panini stickers on TikTok where he's amassed a fairly sized, oh, decent sized audience. That, yeah, yeah. He opens sticker packs from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Recently, he unpacked Neil Webb from a Euro 88 pack while he was playing for England. And then later, a few packs later, opened him again while playing for Nottingham Forest in early 95. Following this, Neil Webb's son got in touch and said, please can Neil Webb have the classic Neil Webb stickers? He sent them to his dad and in return received several signed photos of Neil at his various clubs, putting him in contention as possibly the nicest England player ever. Uh, As a a footnote to this whole affair, he's reliably informed that after his retirement in football at Merthyr Tidville in 2000, he became a postman. All the best, Ollie. Reuniting footballers with their stickers. Would you want your sticker if you're a footballer? Like, like if you're a footballer in the 90s, now they're, you know, they're so out of touch. God knows whether they'd want this. I don't even know if there's sticker albums now, is there? Um, but would you want your own... Would you think, this is a piece of memorabilia I want? And would you be buying... How would you source it, if so? And what would you do with it? The temptation is to stick it on a urinal or something like that, isn't it? No, I think if you've got your own sticker, it's put it in a memory box that you think one day you'll look through and you never will. That kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, I th- I th- you would want it, wouldn't you? I, th- I think it's, Neil, that's the perfect kind of age as well, like Neil Webb. So, like, there's no way he's coming across Euro 88 packs much anymore. No. Do you think Webb was desperate for it or do you think he just heard about it? This was to complete. I think Neil Webb had a Euro '88 sticker book and was missing one sticker himself. (laughs) Oh my word! (laughs) And it's been eating him alive ever since. I wonder if I'm often uh, scouring eBay for '90s football memorabilia. I wonder if I've ever been unknowingly courting a bidding war with the actual player itself for like a piece of. (laughs) (laughs) Do you remember when you didn't you buy that Coca-Cola League Cup Man of the Match jacket? didn't you get in a bit, a bit of a bidding war yeah, with that? Yeah, I ended I up mean, massively overpaying for that because I was just, you know, it's, it's the seduction <laughs> of a, an auction. Interestingly, I was sorting my wardrobe out yesterday and I came across that. I was like, why the fuck have I still got this? <laughs> it was a punchline for a live show and it's just taken up. So I'll, I'll spend money storing that for the rest of my life. <laughs> would you, have you ever worn it out? Absolutely not. Where would you wear that? When would you wear it out? I'd only wear that if I was a bouncer. League, you know, you've got to wear it to a League Cup game. When would you go to a League Cup game? That's the most absurd bit of the whole lot. All right, can we have the 90s o'clock news jingle, please? From the headquarters of ITN, News at 10, with Chris Scott. Thank you to Etan Yankelbitz for sending this through. Brian Kilkline has hit the news. Do you remember Brian Kilkline? How would you describe his look? How would you describe his look, Josh? Hairy. <laughs> He's hit the Newcastle Chronicle Live website as Alan Thompson has recalled how Brian Kilkine was absolutely furious on a pre-season chore when he woke up to discover that his hair had been cut on an end of season <gasps> trip. 
Oh, and no, no, no. According no, no, to former, no. this is from the article, according to former teammate Alan Thompson, who was among those present in Ayanapa when Newcastle celebrated promotion to the Premier League in 1993, one team bonding session infamously went wrong after a brave individual decided to target Kill Klein's prized locks when he fell asleep. Kill Klein oh, had told Chronicle Live previously about the incident. The only bad time I had in my career was when I had my hair cut. The identity of the culprit has remained a mystery for many years. Former Newcastle defender Barry Venison has previously said, if someone wants to accuse me of doing it, I will take the blame. And clearly, it was not one of the club's younger players who picked up the scissors, as Thompson explained. Venison's an interesting one, obviously, because he himself had his locks. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's responsible for the cutting of his own locks, presumably. <laughs> You'd hope so. Like, Barry Vanderson had a complete restyle, didn't it, when he went into punditry? There is so much hair in that early Newcastle team, in it? That, that early 90s Newcastle side. Yeah. So, do you want to know who Kill Klein's main suspects were? Killer Thought, Venison, Lee Clark, Sh- Steve Watson, Robbie Elliott. He's got a Netflix documentary written all over <laughs> it, hasn't it? Brian Kill Klein is terrifying. Isn't he? Like yeah. the, the visual of him. I, I think Lee Clark, I, I think it's got to be someone who's got a lot of... I don't know enough about Venison, but I always saw him as, from his punditry, I saw him as quite a kind of um, intelligent kind of... Not a kind of mad figure. Do you know what I mean? It, it needs a... I'd have, I'd have painted it as... Because Lee Clark famously, uh, didn't he um, get sold by Sunderland after wearing a T-shirt that slagged them off or something? Can't remember exactly what, what it was. But Lee Clark felt like a bit of an, a, a character that could do mad things. And I think cutting off the hair of Brian Kilkline is up there. So I, so I was just I was Googling um, Brian Kilkline because it just wasn't on my register anywhere at all. I don't even remember him as a player or a man. He's a beast. Yeah, he's, he's terrifying. terrifying. He looks like... Every picture I've Googled of him that came up looks like he's fresh from a battle scene in Braveheart. Yeah, I know. He's yeah. like something... Uh, Brian Kilkline is like something off a Game of Thrones, isn't he? Yeah, yeah he is, isn't he? He's like, he's like north of the wall. Like you, you would be <laughs> insane to cut his hair. There's no way Venison did that. Yeah. It's such a shame Brian Kilkline wasn't cast in something like that, like Dungeons and Dragons or... What's he up to now, Brian Kilkline? He was interviewed in 2017... Now to be find at home in Holmfirth with a nine-metre-long metal dragon and a mermaid. <laughs> and he lived on a narrowboat. He lived on a narrowboat while playing for Swindon. What, what a great well, like, guy. That moustache, when he's like in his late 80s, he's so terrifying looking. Like, he, he yeah. looks like he would just rip you in half. Kevin Keegan described Klein as his most important signing for the club. That's exactly the kind of thing you say, though, isn't it? You know, if you're a <laughs> when manager, he's looming that... over you with like a medieval weapon. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do it, Brian. Your eyes report inside it. No, I mean, it's a classic manager thing to say. It's like naming an album track as your favourite song by a band you want to show that you're a big fan of. It's like that's it's exactly what you've got to do. Um, can I just say, I just googled image Brian Kilkline, and one of the images that comes up is a picture of him playing at the Masters. Remember the, the football. Masters they used to do like after players are retired yeah. 2003 and he's covered in blood at the Masters which is basically a knockabout a five-a-side knockabout he's managed Absolute to cover himself legend. in blood it's like, the ball's not even allowed over head height is it oh my god it's just a terrifying man oh I really loved him I really love Brian Kilkline send in your Brian Kilkline facts hello at quicklykevin.com there's a picture of Brian Kilkline and Steve Grizovich if there's two People who look less like modern-day footballers stood next to each other. You couldn't imagine. (laughs) There we go. If you want to get in touch with us, uh, this is how. Get in touch with the show. 
Email hello at quicklykevin.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at quicklykevin and sign up to the mailing list at quicklykevin.com. All right. This is a guest we've wanted on for a long time, it's fair to say. A fascinating footballing character, Croatia fan, England fan, most famously a West Brom fan, also the first host on Match of the Day too. Let's meet him. Here he is, Agent Charles. Our guest this week was born to an English father and a Croatian mother and grew up on the terraces of the Hawthorns watching his beloved West Bromwich Alban. A passionate football fan, he is one of very few people to have anchored primetime football coverage for both the BBC and ITV. It's an honour to welcome to Whitley Kevin, Adrian Charles. Thank you very much. I must correct you, I wasn't on the terraces at West Brom. I was in the seats, I was in the posh seat. Well, oh. nothing was posh in those days. They were, <laughs> but I was on the halfway line in the old rainbow stand with my granddad, about halfway up, and that's where I watched the Albion for all those years, next to my granddad and a bloke oh. who gave out Fox's glassier mints every time the Albion scored. So even oh. <laughs> I put one of those mints, it is to be transported back. Oh wow! To score in that goal. Did you never brave the terrace? Did you never go standing behind the net? Or... Oh, no, I did. I mean, when my granddad got too old to go, I then went on the terraces. But I liked it better. I mean, you didn't get a good view, but I'm reasonably tall, so that was fine. But also, if there's a twat next to you getting on your wick, you can just move away. Yeah. In seats, <laughs> you just... The start of the season, somebody new has moved into you, behind you, a moaner, somebody who never shuts up. It's like a death sentence. <laughs> I was away at Luton Town this year, and there was a bloke behind me. My only excuse for him was that he'd driven from Bournemouth that morning. The older you get, you think in terms of drives. You go, oof, you've really got your plan in the route in your head and thinking where he would have gone. <laughs> Perhaps he was letting off some steam. But he never shut up the whole game, yelling, moaning, yelling, moaning, celebrating, moaning, yelling. I mean, if you stuck with him for a whole season, it was bad enough for yeah. one game. You'd have to just go elsewhere. There was a bloke I had a season ticket next to for a while, and all he ever said was, fucking wing it. Wing it. <laughs> fucking wing it. Every time. Nothing else. That was it. Relentlessly. It's funny that you've really triggered a memory there. If like the first game of the season, sitting in a season ticket seat, and there being someone really annoying around you, and you're like, I hope that's just a day tripper. Yeah. And then going to the next game, and, oh, they're there. We've got a season of this. Exactly. I've kind of made sure that I'm surrounded by about 10 people. I know they're all my mates now. We've all... You've got a buffer zone. We've got a kind of an exclusion zone, yeah. <laughs> no twats. At Plymouth, when I had season ticket in the 90s, it was fine because there were so many empty seats. <laughs> I don't remember ever sitting in my actual seat. You just go, around here, this seems all right. <laughs> I went to an away game. I went to a game at Plymouth. We played you in the League Cup. It must have been late 80s, early 90s. Yeah. And I was right behind the goal. Yeah, on the Barn Park End Terrace. And I have three abiding memories. One was our goalkeeper did a brilliant save, trying to tip it over the bar. It was a fantastic save, but he was actually got too much on it. So the ball didn't go over the bar. It just fell down right in front of us and into the net. And then in the other half, Shilton was the goalkeeper for Plymouth. Yeah. And the ball boy had the ball behind the goal. And because Plymouth were winning, he was going, no, 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 don't give it back, don't give it back. 
It's the first kind of bit of gamesmanship like that I remember seeing at close quarters. So I remember yelling abuse at him. And then thirdly, at the end, after we'd lost, the announcement said, uh, oh, I wish all West Brom fans a safe journey home. I did a black country bloke behind me who went, oh, they might as well say fuck off and crush for all that. <laughs> I thought it was a great line. They were only wishing us well, but he wasn't accepting that because we <laughs> What did you think of the ground there, Adrian? You'd have just been on basically an uncovered piece of terracing, basically, wasn't it? That's To be fair, I went back again in about, oof, must have been about 2013 or 14 or something with the Albion, and it hadn't changed a great deal then. How dare you? No, but look, I'm trying not to be an old curmudgeon, but I'd have that over. Every other ground looks exactly the same. You know you're there, Home Park, Plymouth. Well, when you said Kenilworth Road, it did make me think, I want to go to Kenilworth Road one more time. I mean, that is a shock. I mean, there's no room for a ground there. And to get into the away end, you actually sort of walk in between two terraced houses. Yes, amazing. In the garden. And they still look like there's a ton of conservatories up the left-hand side of the ground. They look like they were built by a conservatory maker, not a grainer, but a proper club, Yeah. to use a cliche. Everyone's a proper club. Yeah. Managers are always saying that. Have you seen that on that Brian yeah. Twitter thing? They're all oh, it's a proper club. Proper club. It's <laughs> so good. It's going to X. It's a proper club. We played a proper club. What's the counterfactual there? An improper club? Not a real club? Does anyone support a club and say, yeah, I'm an X fan? We're not a proper club, but, you know. <laughs> Do you think MK Dons? MK Do you think Dons, MK Dons fans are like, we're not a proper club? Interesting, but I I would think not. I think they've propped up by now. Are there certain grounds that you absolutely love that you would just want to be protected as kind of heritage sites? Well, being shallow, it would genuinely be the ones where we've won at. <laughs> I mean, the few times we play at Wembley, we always seem to lose. So, I mean, Wembley can fuck off. I don't want that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the old Wembley was fine. We managed to win there, but the new Wembley, nah, not for me. Don't like it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like the old traditional one, I've got to even say, controversially, Villa Park, you know, it's, again, it doesn't look like every other ground. I mean, even Goodison, a bit long in the tooth, but that's got something about it. We want to talk to you first, before we move on to Croatia, about, obviously, you've been at BBC and ITV. Few people have done that, but one of them, obviously, is Dez. Have you ever spoken to Daz about the move across? Did he give you any tips? When I got the ITV job, we went out for lunch, you know, and I was in awe oh, of that. Word. Love it. Yeah, he was incredibly nice. And he just said, just go and enjoy it. Everyone will slag you off because they do when you go from the BBC to ITV. But, I mean, the longer I was there, the less I enjoyed it. But, <laughs> I mean, the odds are always stacked against you when you have a quote-unquote big money move from the BBC yeah. to ITV, you know. There's three phases of a television career. There's when people say, oh, have you ever heard of? And then the next phase is, did you see Adrian Childs last night? Yeah. And then third phase is, whatever the fuck happened to Adrian Childs? <laughs> <laughs> and I've been very much in the third phase for a while now. Somewhere in those phases, you go from everyone's little discovery, you know, they, oh, if you come across an Adrian Childs, it's like like boy next door you know, and did the working lunch for ages and they might see me on match day two and liked it. And then all of a sudden you're a high roller and there's a lot of people sort of can't forgive you for that, I don't think. You sort of change then. And so they want to say, oh, you've changed. 
The main difference with ITV is that you've just got less time on the ball. It's like the Premier League as opposed to Serie A. I mean, sort of match of the day too, you could take a slightly more sideways, let yeah. less earnest look at it. I take football really seriously, but at the same time, like you, you've got to be aware it doesn't amount to a string of beans. It's nothing, yeah. but it's yeah. really serious. So, I mean, that's a complicated thing to explain to people, but it's as true as the day is long. And you've got to try and do both of those things at the same time. I mean, definitely take it seriously, but he had this just this slight rhyming yeah. every now and then. But you've got to be careful when you're doing just sort of elite football, Champions League football in England, on the main live coverage. You know, ultimately, I just don't think my act quite works. I was unable to take it that bloody seriously. Yeah. I was yeah. looking to subvert it, and you're not really sort of forgiven for that. Do you think that's changed? Because, like, obviously, football is such big business now and seen as so... Every advert for it is about how important it is. A Sky takes it incredibly seriously. Or do you think that was always the case? I suppose Gary raises an eyebrow now and again, doesn't he? Yes, but I think he's skillful like that, like Des. That's sort of all you can do. Your main thing has got to be to take it dead seriously and have an encyclopedic knowledge. As well, so I don't really have. I've got this American friend who's a an academic who was a family friend from donkey's years ago. He, he's very old now, but he comes over occasionally. For a long time, his favourite thing to do was when he got into a black cab and he'd throw. He'd say, "Oh, have you heard of Adrian Charles?" I went, "Oh, Jack, don't do that." <laughs> <laughs> what really interesting happened is after I got the boot from ITV, a cabbie said to him, "He said, oh, I think Adrian's problem." is that he wasn't into football enough. Right. And I think that's actually true. It, well, I'm sort of into West Brom more than I'm into football. <laughs> I do love football, you know. I love talking to other football fans because we've got so much that unites us. And I get football. But I wasn't the kind of football fan who'd, if the Bundesliga happened to be on, I would sit and watch it. Yeah. I couldn't tell you who was centre-half for Malaga or something. I just didn't have that kind of head for it. Yeah. Anything else, when West Brom lost, I just couldn't bear football at all. So I wouldn't want match of the day or anything. So even when I was doing match of the day too, I mean, sometimes literally I'd leave the Albion having lost, drive back to London on the Saturday, listening to something sombre on the radio and just not connect with football at all. And I'd go into match of the day too. And so the editor would say, bloody hell, Liverpool yesterday. Did you see that? I'm going, oh, I don't know. I wouldn't know. <laughs> Which is obviously suboptimal. And, you know, breaking news, West Brom, in the general world of things, lose a lot. So there was a lot of times that I wasn't across it. Which didn't help matters either. Do you think as well, I thought you were the first kind of anchor to have a regional accent. So much like Des and Gary and, you know, Dan Walker, Jake Humphrey, they've got almost no accent whatsoever. Do you think that... Played a role. Maybe. I mean, that's true in news as well. You know, I, the last, blimey, 30 years, about every six months, there'll be a story in the paper, something about regional accents. You're not trusted if you're a Brummie or people can't understand the Scottish accent or something. And I still get called about that every time, which tells its own story because <laughs> yeah. there still aren't many people I've got a regional accent on there. I'm still kind of the exception that proves the rules. Yeah. There's a lad called Sean Farrington who does the business news on the Today programme on Radio 4. And actually, they gave it to him to present the other day. 
And that's the test that BBC's got a role to play here. Yeah. And when Hugh Edwards started doing the news, he's got a very sing-song proper yeah. on compromise, an FD accent. Oh, you'll find a stronger than FD accent in England, but not much. Yeah. And even that, you might say, it jarred slightly at first. But if you're on the BBC long enough doing the news, it becomes acceptable. So you stuck somebody with a strong Geordie accent on. That's got to happen because then that will make that acceptable. But it does jar, and it jars for all of us. Yeah. Like, I did a phone-in about it, and a guy said, oh, I'm a scouser through and through. But when I get on my plane at Liverpool Airport to go on holiday and the pilot comes on, if the pilot sounds like me with a thick scouse accent, he says, I'll shit myself. <laughs> We've all got that sort of prejudice. But yeah. with football commentators, it's interesting. I mean, I, I literally, this stuff, women don't understand the offside rule, all that. I can't tell you what bollocks I think that is. I mean, a lot of the people I go to the Albion with are women and they leave my knowledge standing. And every, I, mean, I just don't draw the distinction. But I must say, when the commentators first started, I wouldn't say it jarred, but it was just different. It was unusual. It was at a higher register. I would say, oh, right, okay. I had no objection to it. Some were good, some were bad, but I had no objection to a woman commentator, but it just sounded unusual. And I don't know how long it's been a regular thing now, but it was only at the World Cup in Qatar that I noticed for the first time that I wasn't noticing. So I'll be listening to a game on the radio yeah. or I'm watching on the telly. Halfway through the first half, I think, oh, it's a woman commentator, and I just hadn't picked up on it. So you kind of get used to anything, and that's how things change. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, File a claim right on the State Farm mobile app and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Well, let's go back to the 90s because I remember one of my first memories of you in football coverage was I remember you being excellent on the business lunch show that I'd watch as a student. I don't want to be rude, but not by appointment, but you know, I didn't have a huge amount of skin in the business game in those days, (laughs) but you did. (laughs) You did an excellent job. But I remember you being on a touchline for the BBC during a Croatia game wearing a Croatia hat. Yeah. And that was probably my first exposure to you as a football fan. I don't know whether that would have been France 98, maybe. It might have been 96. Might have been 96. That's when Croatia first came. And just before that, they played at Wembley. Yeah. 
friendly against England. And I think I might have filmed somewhere there. Well, that's the first question. Croatia play England. Well, Croatia did play England, obviously, in the semi-final in 2018. Yeah. What was your feelings? Awful, awful. I didn't like it at all because I suppose you could take the positive view and say, well, I'll go home a winner either way. Yeah. Not in my nature. It was more, I'll go home a <laughs> loser either way. <laughs> and I just, I know so many England fans. I am an England fan. It'd be sort of disrespectful to draw any pleasure from Croatia winning, although I was delighted for them. Yeah. found it very difficult. I sat next to Rachel Burden from Five Live at that night in Moscow, and I just got quieter and quieter and quieter. And in the end, she said, are you all right? And I went, no, not really, I'm not. <laughs> I just sort of skulked on. Still, it's going to be a long time till I forgive the French for that flipping final. Yeah. Just that Griezmann cheated his arse off for the free kick and then there was a stupid VAR decision for the penalty and we, we were good enough to win that. I'd always think of Croatia, it's their last knockings now, this generation are gone, but they just keep producing them. Yeah, yeah. you've had several golden generations in a row almost. I don't know what's going on. I used to think, come 96, Slaven Bilic is very good on this, he said, you've got to remember... In mean, 96 at the Euros and 98 in France, we're playing for dead people. We'd fought yeah. a war. We'd never been a nation before. Well, we'd never been a nation in the sort of footballing yeah. game. We'd been a nation sort of going back. But since 1918 have been Yugoslavia in various forms. Then before that, part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and so on. So there was an independent Croatia. And I thought this is giving them something extra. Yeah. Then, A, that was totally true to some extent, but then it sort of kept happening. And if that was true of Croatia, it would equally be true of Yugoslavia stroke Serbia. Yeah. Who have just sort of played below themselves the whole time. Much bigger country, basically the same sort of coaching structure and all the rest of it. Doesn't seem to have helped them. And I've asked myself over and over again, I've spent a lot of time there. I know a lot of football people, a lot of football journalists. I said, well, what is it? You can't just say you're just better athletes, full stop. So what is it? And I said, well, we are. We're just better people, full stop. Croats are the greatest. I said, well, okay, well, you can't really say that. But then I'm running out of other explanations. I've heard one, we play outdoors a lot. Well, that's true of a lot of places. I mean, they say we've got this huge seaboard, so we play a lot of different sports. Water polo, we play basketball, handball, tennis, as well as football. But, you know, it's not about facilities. In probably all of Croatia, there aren't as many all-weather pitches, proper top-standard pitches, as there are at St George's Park here. Well, is it three million people in Croatia? Somewhere between three and a half and four, I think, with a huge diaspora as well. It's just difficult to work out sort of why it is. I mean, they must be doing something right with the coaching, with the way they bring on young kids. I don't know. It's probably less organised than it is here. You know, we're not hot-housing kids from the age of seven, nine. I don't think it's quite like that there. You can live your childhoods, basically. Yeah. Modric's story is incredible. It's really worth reading. I mean... He was a refugee from parts of Croatia which were overtaken by Serbs during the war. Yeah. His granddad was a farmer and was shot dead in his fields by paramilitaries. And there's a little bit of footage on YouTube 
of Modric at the age of seven tending his father's goats on the hillsides near Zadar. Oh, wow. And then they were went to a refugee hotel in Zadar in Croatia, which was never taken by the Serbs. And as he tells it, he just kicked a ball against the wall in the car park there for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. In the end, Zadar, the team, took him up, but then and then eventually he ended up at Dinamo Zagreb, having been rejected for being too small by Hajduk Split, which was his team. Yeah. And then he becomes arguably greater than those who came before him. And I just thought there's some 16-year-old at Hajduk Split now who Man City are desperate to sign. Another flipping Croatian wonder kid. They just keep coming. <laughs> yeah. You touched on something there that, I didn't know really until I researched this, which is that exactly as you said, Croatia didn't exist, wasn't recognised as a, a nation by FIFA until 1992. Before that, they were consumed into the Yugoslavian team. At the Italian 90, obviously, Yugoslavia there. Where do you, as a Croatian, where do your loyalties kind of lie there? Was there support for the Yugoslavian team? Or Yeah, I remember I was at university, I was just finishing at university, and I remember being delighted when Yugoslavia won. I think they beat Spain. And there was a lot of Spanish students, so I was like being a bit smug with them about it. There's some brilliant documentaries about that period. It's pretty amazing in 1990 that how there were Croats in that team. Yeah. Slavin Bilic wasn't picked because his dad was thought to be too sort of pro-Croat. But they were willing each other. The Croats who didn't were willing Yugoslavia to win because they were their mates and they still speak of each other from that generation. They still use nicknames for each other. And they had won the, I think, 1989, the World Youth Cup in Chile. Yeah. And that was the nucleus of that great Croatian side of Bilic, Boban, I think, Shukar, Robert Jani, and all that, like Asanovic, I think, and a good few sort of Serbian players as well. When they came together, that first match they had ever, I think it was before they were officially recognised, was against the United States. They played a friendly in Zagreb, and that was a massive deal. And then in a qualifier for Euro 96, they beat Italy in Italy, in Palermo. And that was the moment people stood up and took notice and thought, well, I mean, what's going on here? Did you watch that Sky documentary about Italia 90? It was a three-parter, and they had the guy that Yugoslavia went out on penalties to Germany, I think, West Germany, in the quarters, or whoever they went out on penalties to, and he said if they had scored and then won the World Cup, there's people that believe the Yugoslavian war wouldn't have kind of happened in the same way. Did you see uh, that? Actually, I've never heard that. Yeah. I doubt it. I mean, that had been cooking up for a long time, ever since Tito died in 1980 and before. So I think it was just this guy blaming himself for missing the penalty, probably. He's been beating <laughs> yeah, himself yeah. up for the last 33 years. <laughs> the heaviness of war on his shoulders. I was looking at Croatia's record. Since 94, they've qualified for every tournament by Euro 2000, the 2010 World Cup, which is an astonishing record over a long, long period of time. And it made me wonder, would you say, on the balance of good times, has Croatia given you more than England? Oh, God, yeah, absolutely. Well, England have literally not <laughs> done nothing. I suppose there was a semi-final in 1990, which yeah. peaked in. I didn't think I had any more to give them, went out on penalties. But since then, with Croatia, the biggest one for me was in 98, yeah. when they played Germany in the quarterfinals. Oh. In Euro 96 in the 
quarterfinals. They played Germany as well. And it was at Old Trafford and I was there. I mean, you look at the footage of that. I think it's Klinsman absolutely takes out a Croatian player. It's completely unthinkable. It's our red card, if you look at it. It's phenomenal. <laughs> and then Croatia ended up losing 2-1, I think it was. And so big grudge match, Germany. Now, I happened to be in Canada for my mate's wedding. So I was in Toronto on the day of that game. I went out looking for some Croatian fans because Canada's full of Croats. And eventually I found a place in a suburb of Toronto called Streetsville. And there was a bar there, which is this huge squat sort of flat building called the Crow's Nest, C-R-O, apostrophe S. Right. And I went in there and there must have been a thousand Croats. It was Croatia. It smelled like Croatia, <laughs> unmistakably Croatian. Anyway, the game started. I was on my own in there. And I thought, I just want one goal here. I don't care if we lose. I just want Croatia to score one goal, see what this is like. And then about five minutes, I think, before the end of the first half, Germany had a player sent off. At that point, the bloke in front of me, we were sort of sitting down, a lot of people standing, but I was just sitting, I was quite near the screen. And the bloke in front of me turned around and sort of clasped my hand. And I thought, he's a fucking big hand. It was like a bloody shovel. It was enormous, you know, it just completely dwarfed my hand. Anyway, I sort of noted this. And a couple of minutes later, I think just before halftime, we scored. At which point, we stood up, but this bloke turned around, picked me up, and I just kept going. I kept going higher and higher as he picked me up. I'm, I'm not kidding. He must have been knocking on eight foot tall. He was absolutely huge. My feet seemed to be about a metre above the ground. And he just shook me like a rag doll. You know, eventually he put me down. In the end, we won 3-0. And I just feel it was the most memorable game I've ever seen. It was absolute bloody pandemonium. Oh, man. Well, I bumped into a friend of mine who'd been invalided out of the army in the war with PTSD. He was... I think he'd seen too many friends blown up by mines and I'd seen some awful stuff. And he actually tried to escape himself and run off to Canada. I totally lost touch with him. It was called Dennis, and I bumped into him outside that place in Streetsville. I mean, it was just amazing. Without joy, there is no despair and vice versa. The last qualifying game for Euro 2000, Yeah, it boiled down to Croatia, against Yugoslavia or Serbia. I don't know what they were calling themselves there. So they played each other in Belgrade, and I can't remember what the score was. I think it was nil-nil. I can't remember. But then the decider, it was one of them was going through. The decider was in Zagreb. So I flew out to Zagreb. I had to oh, be... when? Yeah, interesting experience, right? Firstly, I think I'm right in saying, down the one touchline, there seemed to be a 100 invalided war veterans in wheelchairs and the PA kept going Igra Stolica or Utamitsa Stolica means the game of the century the game of the century oh my word. I thought let me ease off a little bit <laughs> and the really interesting fact was is that I realised then you need two sets of fans for there to be any atmosphere because in that stadium there must have been 40,000 in there the only Serbian supporters were, well, there was the players and the bench. So that amounts to what? 30 people, 40 max. Was that how they were banned because it'd be too dangerous? Or? It just wasn't possible. I mean, the war was just too dangerous. 
Too dangerous. And then the Serbia had a player sent off again. I think, can't remember who it was, but he, he got in a tangle tackling Robert Yarny and grabbed his bollocks. And that's a red card offence. Yeah, that, that is a red card offence. You don't need VAR for that. And off you went. And the tunnels in the Maximum Stadium in Zagreb are underneath the end where all the maddest fans are, which are all Croatian, obviously. I mean, this is the ground, don't forget, where some argue the war may even have started in that ground when there was a riot when Red Star Belgrade played Dinamo Zagreb, I think it was 1990. And there was a riot there and the police were thought to be attacking the Dinamo fans, not the Serbian fans. And Zvonimir Boban ended up drop-kicking a Yugoslav policeman in the bottom. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, I remember that. And the hand of history wasn't so much on their shoulder, it was sort of pressing them down. But anyway, as the sent-off Serbian player walked towards this huge bank of vitriol, he just went like this and gave the three-fingered Serbian salute to these fans. <laughs> I mean, they couldn't get him because there's a big wall. It's like a 20-foot wall. Oh, my God. You know, he might have been flayed alive. But... Serbia came out on top. I think it was a two-all draw, but they went through and Croatia didn't, which was Croatia's first big disappointment. Yeah. But when the Serbs scored, there wasn't a sound. All you could hear was the players yelling. Suddenly, it was like being at a reserve game. Yeah, yeah. And then the derision started whistling and it drowned it all out. But there is no atmosphere. You know, you need two lots of vitriol to there be an atmosphere. <laughs> One lot has got nothing to do with itself. It's got nothing to reflect back. What did you do that night after the game had finished in Zagreb? What was it like? It was just kind of dead. I mean, people just shrugged and walked away. I remember I was with my mate who was a journalist who drove me back to wherever I was staying. And I just remember all the whole route to the airport from the stadium was lined with police, lest anyone had a pop at the Serbian team bus on the way to the airport. But it was still in an era where the two teams would have been mates. I was going to say, what's mad about you not qualifying for the Euro 2000? It's like you were ranked third in the world in January 1999. Yeah. And fresh off the back of the great performances in 96 and 98 and Davos Suka doing so well, it's kind of weird because that is a golden generation. Weird. It happens. You know, France were out very early in the 2002 World Cup. Yeah. I mean, Italy didn't qualify for the last World Cup, did they? No. Having won the Euro. I mean, it it just happens. Although with the nature of it, I think they're making it harder and harder not to qualify now as the tournaments (laughs) grow and grow. But look, they bounce back. I thought at the time, well, that's the end of that. Yeah. (laughs) We'll go back to being also Rams, but it just doesn't seem to be like that. There's hope for Welsh fans after all. (laughs) Just on that, it fascinates me covering football and being a football fan, how the whole narrative is written according to the outcome. Yeah. When the best example I remember covering the Champions League final between Real and Atletico Madrid, which was in Lisbon, it was the last Champions League final. Yeah. I remember, but Atletico were winning. Yeah. Until right at the end. Then I think Ramos equalised. Now, at that stage, you know, with the analysts in the studio, I think Roy was there, Lee Dixon was there. He's doing a whole run of analysis. The basis why we you can see how Atletico have done it. Teamwork, the work ethic is that much greater. All that beats the Galacticos of Real every time. And then Ramos scores, and then they go on and win. And 
There's no substitute for the galactic eyes for the sheer quality. They will come out and talk every time. Now, one goal has to make all that difference. But there was a yeah. great example with the Croatian game. Well, actually, to be honest, I didn't watch it. I had to go out somewhere. I assume Wales would get tonked, which doesn't give me any great pleasure. But it was clear that Croatia were absolutely all over them, beating them all ends up. At which point the narrative was Wales looked lost in the post-Bail era, the golfing quality only too obvious. Even if it only finished 1-0, you know, everyone knew Croatia should have had six. Yeah. Then one goal sneaks in in the third minute of injury time and the headlines are suddenly, Wales prove that there's life after Bale. Yeah. I mean, Gordon Strachan tells me that his favourite ever interview line after a match was when West Brom pulled off the great escape. Do you remember when we were absolutely hopeless all season? (laughs) On the morning of the last day of the season, we were bottom, but ended up surviving because the three teams above us all lost and we won. But about the third game from the end of the season, Brian Robson was manager and we were at Man United. Yeah. And I think we drew nil-nil and they even missed a penalty. And... They had 37 attempts on goal, Man United. (laughs) But the interview question to Brian Robson afterwards on Match of the Day or whatever Gordon said was, so, Brian, you got your tactics spot on. (laughs) His balls. (laughs) Nobody who gets their tactics spot on allows 37 attempts on goal. (laughs) Even if the penalty had gone in, it wouldn't have been tactics a bit wanting there. (laughs) Did you find that? As a presenter, did you find, oh, it just falls into these same kind of tropes that it's easy to fall into coverage-wise? Do you know what I mean? The same stories. Oh, yeah, yeah. It can be. And the avoidance of cliches in football coverage is almost impossible. But you sort of have to try. But then I tried too hard, and you can try and be too clever, and then it just it doesn't quite work. Yeah. I remember saying to Gareth Southgate when I worked with him, I was trying to think of a meaningful question at halftime or before the start of the game. I can't remember who was playing. It was somebody who was an underdog. And I said, so what's the message to the team? What would they be saying to them? And he said, well, they'll be looking at this, looking at that. He said, but actually, that's nonsense. What they're going to be saying, look, keep it tight early on. Don't concede, and then we'll see what happens. That's the reality <laughs> of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And after that, you mentioned I did a business programme. Mm. My job in that was like, it was a business program for people who really weren't interested in business in a way, or at least yeah. that people who didn't have a skin in the game, as you put it, could watch it. My job there was to take something apparently complicated, yeah, i.e. finance news, and turn it into something simple. Yeah. Now, it often struck me that in football, it was possibly the other way around. <laughs> but you take something inherently simple and make it a... Absolutely bloody bafflingly complicated <laughs> as you can. And I still can't make my mind up about that because I still essentially believe that we sort of overcomplicated, like a team wins 1-0. Each team's had six shots. One of them's gone in and that team wins 1-0. So then you retrospectively impose a narrative, an explanation of that involving all sorts of tactical master strokes. Is that because the average football fan just wouldn't be able to live with the fact that it, luck is a huge factor. And- well, it's partly filling air time. You've got to talk about something. <laughs> but, you know, my arguing against myself, Gordon was the first person I really worked with at 
and then Lee after. And then watching games with Gordon was phenomenal. One time we were, West Brom were playing Villa at the Albion, but I couldn't be there because I was in the match of the day studio. It was on a Sunday. Mm. And I think Villa were one up. I mean, Martin O'Neill was manager. And then we had a free kick, not from a shooting position, but in Villa's half. And just as he went up to take the free kick, Gordon nudged me. He said, you might score here. Tell you why after. And then the ball went in and we scored. I couldn't. <laughs> so what are you talking about? Where did that come from? And then he went back and rewound it. And he said, I could see they'd left. There was too much space between the centre-halves or the centre-half or the fullback or something. And he knew that if the ball went into the right place yeah. and our striker made the right run, then there was a good chance he'd score. And he was right. It was similar with Lee. Lee Dixon, when he was doing his runs of analysis for games on Match of the Day too. I mean, he, he was funny. I mean, that thing at the Champions League final when they thought Atletico was going to win, he had this beautiful analysis, loads of graphics on the VT clip sorted out, proving why Endeavour will beat the Galacticos every time. And then Ramos scored. Remember, he got his sheets of notes and just tore them all up. <laughs> <laughs> But Lee would, match of the day too, he'd go through the analysis with me before we went on, which he described me as his idiot filter. <laughs> he said, like, if I can get you to understand it, then anyone's going to be able to understand it. And I was perfectly happy. Yeah. That's how it should be. Because we broadcast it and you've got to bear that in mind and always got this mission to explain. And I would always err on the side of over-explaining, explaining the simple stuff and telling us something we don't know rather than just being so jargony. I mean, there was one during the Euros, I think it was, when Croatia were playing Spain, somebody was doing the the co-commentator, just blathering on first phase, second phase, third phase. I mean, literally, I could not understand what was going on at all. You've got to keep it understandable, keep it insightful, but you've got to say something which we couldn't have worked out ourselves. So, look, the ball goes thundering in from... 40 metres. My mum could tell you it's a great goal. Or 14 passes leads to a goal. Then I can see it's a great goal, but it takes Lee to explain how they've done it, yeah. what's happened. And often him just going through stuff, drawing things on a thing for me. It's like the first time I wore glasses when I was 12, suddenly yeah, yeah. sharp focus. <laughs> if you ever meet Lee Dixon, ask him to do his pub table beer glass tutorial on how Arsenal won the league under George Graham. <laughs> he gets one lot of glasses for Arsenal, the other, the opposition. And he just explained the absolutely formulaic. If they went here, then I ran here and Steve Bold or whoever stepped up and then I'd come in behind. There was a, It was absolutely by numbers. That is fascinating. Has that kind of education changed the way you watch football? No, I'm I'm still hopeless. I mean, I read the game very badly. <laughs> I know when there's a good goal. Like, no, hang on, we're under pressure here, or <laughs> yeah. we're on top here, or he should have scored that. When it's explained to me, I can get it, but I can't pick it up. If somebody switched wings, it takes somebody around me to sort of point it out. <laughs> all tied up in the emotion. Yeah. It should for actual sort of technical know-how. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's interesting you mentioned drinking with Lee Dixon. You've written a great book, which I loved, called The Good Drinker, which is about, not about giving up alcohol, but by drinking kind of, what's the phrase you use? Mindfully. Mindfully, yeah. Did you go drinking with all these 90s footballers a lot when you're away in the World Cup? Well, yes, your answer. It's not just about the footballers. I mean, going to the tournaments... Looking back, I dread to think what my intake was. I mean, the first one I did when I was still at the BBC and I was like bored to Gary's Blackadder and he'd do all the live games and I'd do the highlights programmes, which I was just in Berlin for a month. I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. (laughs) But I mean, the pattern there was more or less the same, where you go, you've got 64 games, I think, a World Cup is in the current format, more next time. But 64 games in 32 days. So there's not that many games, really. Yeah. I mean, there's three a day in the first phase, and then after that, it gets thinner and thinner. In stark contrast, by the way, to the Olympics, where they spend all this money and years to host the Olympics, and then it's all over in 16 days, during which time there's about 20,000 contests. So you work on the Olympics, <laughs> like in Beijing, you barely got time to go to the toilet. There's no going. Because... <laughs> You're missing a badminton match or something. In fact, I didn't even go and see any sport because to go to watch some table tennis or something meant you were missing 20 other things. So I just watched it on the telly in my room or in the office. Well, the World Cup's different. So you do a game, if there was a game to be done, and then you go out and drink it till about three in the morning. And then you get up late morning and repeat. Yeah. It's like the Edinburgh Festival. Yeah, maybe something like that, yeah. It was Roy was the only one. I remember it hadn't really occurred to me until we were in Lisbon for another game for a Champions League qualifiers. The first time I worked with Roy, and he turned up, and we the whole team. It must have been thirty of us doing behind the scenes stuff. We were all at this long table, and I can see there was all this beer and wine, and then a can of Coke in front of Roy. And I, it hadn't occurred to me then. I thought everybody drinks here, or everybody else drinks. So it was a big culture. But on reflection, I've written a sort of appendix or right, some afterthoughts for the. Edition. And it occurred to me the idea, the problem with big drinkers like I have was what I'd call in between drinking. So on a standard Champions League trip, I'd go to Real Madrid or whatever. And then let's say playing on the Wednesday night, we'd fly out on the Tuesday, we'd go out half the night, eating, drinking, whatever. The crack could be phenomenal. A night out with Martin O'Neill is just one of the great pleasures. But all of them, but you know, Martin's. Always fantastic, you know, all great company. And is it all football chat? It's not with Martin, but that is the issue with players sometimes. It can be all football, but nevertheless, great crack. And then following day, do the game in the evening. After the game, all off out half the night again, and then get up on the Thursday morning and fly home. Now, at which point, most people have been out drinking, but I would say the majority of the rest. Go home to their families. Yeah. Probably won't drink till the weekend or maybe even till we next go away working. But short as anything, that Thursday evening, I'd be in the pub again. I'm not going mad. I'm in a couple yeah. of pints, meet a mate. 
I remember on the very first day of filming the TV documentary I did called Drinkers Like Me, I was filming in West Brom and it was before a lunchtime kickoff against Liverpool. Yeah. So I was in the pub probably at 10 o'clock in the morning. I had four pints before the game, which is a lot for me, but by no means unheard of. Yeah. And then as it happened that day, I didn't drink in the afternoon because I was getting the train back to London. And it was a friend's 40th birthday that evening. Got there, had a couple of beers, mandatory glass of Seco or something, half a bottle of wine, another couple of beers and went home. And I counted that up the following day. And that came to 36 units. Bloody hell. And that didn't even feel like a drinking day to me. <laughs> now, my point is, well, hey, that made me realise, Christ, I am drinking a lot. But... At the back of that pub in the morning, I went to speak to some of the Liverpool fans who got a bus down there, arrived there at nine o'clock in the morning at the Vine in West Bromwich from Liverpool. And they were giving it the big one outside, singing, beer everywhere. And I was talking to this bloke and he was obviously smashed. He'd had 10 pints or something. And I was interviewing him kind of about drinking. I said, so, blimey, I mean, do you ever think you might be drinking too much? He said, oh, I drink too much on days like this. But, I mean, the long and short of it, it turned out, he wouldn't be having a drink again until the next Liverpool away game. <laughs> so, again, you've got to be careful who you judge, you know, my position, because yeah. it was me doing the in-between drinking. Yeah. I'd be drinking something most days between then and West Brom's game. Was it ever as good as drinking with Martin O'Neill? Is he the best person in football to drink with? There's some stiff competition. I mean, the crack can be sort of absolutely phenomenal. Do you have a best ever night out at those Euros or the World Cup? Did Southgate go out on the lash? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh. Remember the one when we got to the first night in Warsaw before the Euros in 2012? We went to this big restaurant and they were giving out frozen vodka, which none of us were really experienced in drinking. We got back to the hotel and the producer, Tony Passer, just tripped up in the corridor and fell on the floor. And I went to sort of help him up. But Gareth suddenly forgot he was a mature adult and the player in him sort of came out and he just leapt on him to start a pile on before he knew. <laughs> you know, off you come, off you come. <laughs> Gareth was great crack. The one day it sticks in my mind, it wasn't a night out, my God, we had so many. But there was one afternoon towards the end of the World Cup in Germany in 2006 when me, Martin O'Neill, and another presenter called Selena Hinchcliffe who is still stay on Sky from time to time. Brilliant presenter, actually. Should have gone a lot further in the game than she did. We just hired three bikes. Something there wasn't a game on and cycled around Berlin, during which time it became clear that Martin O'Neill, one of his many talents, is not riding a bike. He just could barely ride a bike. Like <laughs> getting jammed in the bloody tram lines and all the rest of it. But we just sat chatting and drinking all afternoon which was inadvisable considering we had bikes to ride. But it was <laughs> the three of us, was only me and Selena, just can't forget that. Just a brilliant time. Did he ever talk to you about the Yorkshire Ripper case? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Didn't he attend it out of interest? He studied law and he's fascinated by crime. I mean, he's got incredibly deep intellectual hinterland. I mean, he's absolutely passionate about football, but he can talk to you forever about politics, film, music. He's got it all going on. He's a fascinating bloke. A bit like you, Adrian. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, 
I could listen to you all day. The lives you have lived. <laughs> yeah. Do you feel like you've lived a million lives? When you go from business lunch to ITV's main anchor, now to Britain's favourite newspaper columnist. Actually, it's not in my nature to think about it like that. I don't go around thinking in my guts, oh, I've done all these amazing things. I've had all these amazing experiences. It needs to be talking to someone like you to remind me of it, really. Yeah. I suppose in my sort of psyche, it's like a bucket with a hole in it, and it sort of drains out overnight every day. And each new day, it's like start on empty and say, what can I do? You know, I've got nothing in the bank. Things have done well. They don't seem to accumulate. I'm just left with nothing. I'm like, oh, God, what now? If I'm not careful. Yeah. Plainly, it's stinking thinking. How much of that pessimism is courtesy of West Brom? That's such a good question. I mean, I joke about that, but it might be true. I became a Catholic when I was 39. And we had the, I had a very severe, you want a severe priest, but you didn't want to mess with him, called Teddy Tasted, Father Terry. And I remember him went into his priest court and said, so why did you become a Catholic? And he was asking me a bit about myself. So what would you say your sort of psychological constitution is or something? What's your personality type? And I went, oh, I can be very negative despondency. He goes, why do you think that is? And I jokingly said, well, I'm a West Brom supporter. And he went, oh, I see. (laughs) He took that on board. (laughs) Actually, I don't think that's true in a way. It just is beautifully self-levelling amongst football fans because I think everyone ends the season about as miserable as the next person. I mean, more (laughs) we've gone down, but you find your level. So for Man City, it's a disaster to finish second. I was thinking this the other day when Plymouth were playing, we were at home to Forest Green who are bottom and we were second, we're now top. But we're doing particularly well this season. And my dad said it would be typical of Plymouth to lose this game. Yeah, yeah. And I thought, I imagine every club in our position would think it would be typical. It would be classic West Brom to lose this. Now, home to the bottom team, classic West Ham, we're having a great season, <laughs> classic Arsenal. Or even Sir Alex, we're saying, oh, being Man United, we do it the hard way. And they've won about 15 titles on the row, whatever. Yeah. I mean, there's never been a team that goes, yeah, we did it the easy way, we won. <laughs> <laughs> it's just something we all sort of tell ourselves. I mean, I'm particularly negative. When I see my heart kind of sinks when we go one nil up in a sense because I immediately project forward to how I'm going to feel at the end when we've lost even though we went one nil ahead I'm thinking <laughs> how terrible it will be when they equalise and then go in front I can almost see the headlines being written I mean often it wasn't the case but you only remember the times when it was like well, I was once it was on Boxing Day I think West Brom were at Reading we were two nil up and it should have been seven, literally it should. If I met their manager at the time and I bumped into it at Zagreb Airport of all places, they've been on a pre-season tour. He said it should have been seven. He said, I've never been in charge of a team so comprehensively thumped. Right. So at the 89th minute, we're 2-0 up, should have been seven. Their fans start filing out, the home fans. And the Albion fans start singing at them, is there a fire drill? You know that one. <laughs> Reading score. Out of nowhere, 2 1. Out of nowhere, Reading score again, 2 2. Fourth minute of injury time, Reading out of nowhere, score again. They're winning 3 2. And then we start filing out in despair 
and their fans are singing to her, is there a fire? <laughs> so I always say to the woman I was with, Gerdiel, a friend of mine there, we always say, when do we sing fire drill? And we're agreed. You can only sing it in injury time and only if you have a three-goal cushion. <laughs> we can be 8 nil up with 15 minutes to go and their fans can all have left or all be leaving and we still won't be singing about it. Well, the good news is Croatia at least brought you some joy. Thank you, Adrian. It's been an absolute pleasure. Always a joy to speak to you. Cheers. Thank you very much. Adrian Childs, I could listen to him all day. I just want, he needs to do like a daily podcast of just his thoughts. Just like, I could yeah. just listen to him. To talk about anything. Because you get the feeling this is Adrian Charles's mind at all times. It's him trying to understand the world and make... He's... Maybe he, he, he is right. He isn't the right anchor for ITV Sport three-minute things. Because Adrian Charles is, for me, so much deeper than that and more interesting than that and more thoughtful than sports presentation needs to be or yeah. maybe has the space to be. And do you know what I think? There's something he said that really stuck with me when he was talking about working on work and lunch. It's like he's trying to make the world simpler. It's almost like he's on a journey to understand the world and yeah. you're along for the ride. Yeah, but love him. That doesn't work necessarily when it comes to football because football needs to be presented in a way that the ordinary person can't be made to feel that they really understand it. Yes. I love him. I adore Adrian Charles. And it was really interesting to hear Croatia. You divorced Croatia in 96 and 98 from the the war they've just been through very easily. And you focus on the fact they had a nice kit. Do you know what I mean? It's very easy <laughs> didn't not to... We didn't even ask him about the kit. The kit is so We didn't nice. even ask him about the nice kit. Damn. Uh, quick quiz? Yeah, Quick quiz. Should we do a starting 11? Yeah. Yeah, why not? Shall we do Croatia v... France World Cup semi final 
two. Two. Well, can you give us their positions? Striker. Striker and midfield. They were playing a 4-4-2 diamond. And is, is this the defensive midfielder? Uh, OK. It is the centre of the diamond, one of the two centres of the diamond. Oh, Caranbu. Christian Caranbu. Yes. Oh. I've got no Croatia players now. Still, I think I've still got a couple. Uh, on account of the research. Alan Boxic. Correct. No. Oh, did he not even no. come on? He must have been injured. Oh. He does not play. And you're out. Oh. I'm not going to give you an extra life because this has gone on too long. <laughs> Go on then, who the... Stefan Givash was the other Frenchman. Of course. Yeah. Vlaovic, Asanovic, mentioned earlier, Sol Soldo. Prosinecki. Uh, Boban. I would have had Boban, actually. Boban. No, Prozanecki came off the bench. Simic and in goal, Ladic. That's it for this week. Don't forget, if you want even more Quickly Kevin, you can get it on the Quickly Kevin fan club over at anotherslice.com forward slash Quickly Kevin. Loads of bonus episodes, years of bonus episodes, plus two fresh bonus episodes this month. Plus, next week's episode is available right now. To get involved, go to anotherslice.com forward slash Quickly Kevin. We will see you next week, or as Chris will say... Today's outro comes courtesy of Kevin Heffernan, who says this. Phil Bab, here's our cab. Great. See you next week. Don't let it let it let.